following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. This is not the first time that somebody has come to Jesus asking what they must do to be saved. Uh, it happened in uh, Luke chapter 10, right, leading up and introducing the story of the, the prodigal, son, uh, the, the good Samaritan, right? Uh, and you kind of get the picture that this was a very common thing for Jesus. Um, and it was mostly uh, people who were pretty convinced they were righteous. These were people, these were not the tax collectors and sinners that were asking this question. These were the righteous people, right? The, the Pharisees and the, the good people, the people who were very serious and diligent about keeping the law, uh, and the question really had this underlying backdrop that, look, Jesus, we are, you know, we're trying really hard here. We're keeping the law. We think we got this pretty well nailed down. But is there some little obscure law that we missed, right? Is there something we've overlooked that, that we're not aware of that we need to, to tighten up to be fully worthy of, uh, of, of salvation of the kingdom of God? Uh, and Jesus, we, we only get two accounts of how he answered in, in Luke, but I'm sure this is something he got very good at answering. And his answer for us oftentimes is a little uh, disconcerting because it's probably not how we would answer, right? If somebody were to come up to you and ask you, what must I do to be saved, what would you say? Well, hopefully you would say something like, well, you know, uh, you're sinners, Jesus died for you, you need to put your trust in him, right? But that's never actually how Jesus answers, which kind of makes us wonder about our methods of evangelism, right? Um, just throw that out there. So what does Jesus say? Right, let's back up a little bit. And, and um, what does he instruct this guy? How does he explain to him what he must do to be saved? Well, he says, again, let me read just the first part. That the, the, teach, uh, the ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Uh, interesting first statement by Jesus. Um, and it's a, a, a phrase that we could easily overlook, right? What does Jesus, Jesus start there? He says, you're, you're calling me a good teacher. No one is good but God alone. Now, in this, Jesus is not denying his deity or he's not claiming that he himself is not good. Uh, but he's wanting to address how this man understands what goodness is, right? Uh, here's the question for you. What does it mean to be good? Right? How would you define goodness? Uh, and it's clear that the man pretty much ignores what Jesus said. Um, uh, and and uh, because he goes on to basically um, affirm his own goodness, right? That's what he, what he does next, right? Uh, so it kind of goes by him. But Jesus makes this declaration that there is really only one good, and that is God alone. Right? And if God alone is good, then what does that make us? Well, it doesn't make us good. Right? It does not make us good. Uh, but the problem with this thinking is that none of us believe this. Right? People do not believe this. People believe that, well, there are good people. And we hear it all the time. And we hear it usually in, in some kind of context like this. Well, you know, my, my, my Buddhist neighbor is is such a good person. They're such a good person. They're so caring and giving, and they help people all the time. 
Or my, my uncle, who's an atheist, is such a good person. Right? Now, honestly, how many of you have said that? You don't have to raise your hand. Right? How many of you have said that? Right? Well, I say it all the time. I say, oh, my, my neighbor, so-and-so, they are such a good person. Right? Um, I don't believe what Jesus says here. Right? And, and the reason is because of the way that we define what goodness is. Um, we believe this word much differently than Jesus does. Right? And what we mean by a good person is clearly much different than how God would describe or define a good person or how Jesus does. How do we define a good person? Um, well, Jesus jumps right in. He doesn't give time to really reflect on this. He jumps right into his next point and his assault on this guy. And he says, you know the commandments. Do, you know, do not commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Uh, Jesus here is not saying that you are saved by keeping the commandments, right? But Jesus knows that the way humanity thinks about goodness and the way God thinks about goodness are quite very different. So Jesus very graciously starts where this man is thinking, right? He starts with this man's understanding of what goodness is all about. Uh, and, and he knows that this, this man, like all of us, uh, tend to think of goodness in terms of a person's moral character. Right? And that's what we mean when we say our, our Buddhist neighbor is a good person. My atheist uncle is a good person. We mean they have good moral character. Right? They're, they're not murderers. Right? They're, not, they're not going around killing people. They're not, uh, they're not sleeping with prostitutes. They're not lying. They're not cheating on their taxes. They might even be nice people, right, who actually help their neighbor or do good things, do good deeds, right? So uh, we, we define uh, and, and like to define goodness in terms of a person's moral character. And that's where Jesus starts with this guy because he knows that's what he's thinking. And he says, well, if we're going to talk about moral character, you know the commandments. And it's interesting that Jesus uh, cites five of the Ten Commandments, right, but does he, does he cite the first commandment? Any of you Bible scholars? Does he start with the first commandment? Second commandment? Third commandment? Fourth? He starts actually with about the fifth commandment. What's called the second table. Right? The first table in the Ten Commandments relate to one's love and devotion to God. And it's interesting that Jesus skips completely over that one. I'm, I'm thinking I would have started there. You know? But Jesus goes, because again, he's, he's starting where this guy is. Right? And uh, he goes to the, the second set, the second table, which re relate to how we treat our neighbor, how we treat other people. Right? So are you lying? Are you cheating? Are you stealing? Are, are you being respectful to your parents? Right? Um, uh, because he knows that is, that is how most of us think of goodness. Right? Moral, we def define our moral character by people basically who keep the rules. Right? So when we say he's a good person, we mean they're a person that in our by our standard anyway, keeps the rules. And that therefore makes them good. Right? Uh, so good means I'm a moral person. Um, and that's where, where, where Jesus starts. Now, interestingly, and we'll see this in a minute, this has nothing to do with one's love for God. Right? Uh, we do not base goodness or define goodness based on a person's love or relationship with God. Right? And right there is where we and Jesus part company. Right? This is where there's a huge problem. And, of course, this is where this man is confused. Uh, we place 
goodness and love for God in two separate categories, as two separate issues, two things that do not have any relationship or connection with each other. So therefore we can say, well, he's a good person. He just doesn't love God. Now, that ought to strike us as either funny or horribly wrong, right? He's a good person. He just doesn't love God. Okay. Are you starting to see a problem there? Is anybody, is this like bells going on, right? It should, all right? Um, there is a shortcoming when we define goodness in terms of one's moral character alone as one who keeps the rules. But Jesus starts with this guy, and he, and he says, you know, the commandments. And, of course, in terms of the commandments, as this guy sees them, what is his answer? I am a good, I am a good person. Yay. I have kept these since I was old enough to know better. Since I was old enough to know the difference between right and wrong. Since the age of accountability, since I was a boy, I have, I have been a good person. I have had impeccable moral character. I haven't killed one single person, right? Hallelujah, right? I, I have not done those things, right? I have been a good person. Now, uh, we, we kind of get the fall. We, we kind of know that this guy's really not a good person, that he's fallen, right? But let me ask you this. Uh, if you were in this chess match with this guy and you want to corner him, what would your next move be? That's kind of a tricky question because we all know what Jesus did. But let's imagine you didn't know the story. And let's just imagine you're out sharing the gospel with somebody. And if you're like me, you've been there, right? I've been in places like this where I've talked to people and I want to share the gospel with them. I know the first trick is to what? Well, convince them they're a sinner, right? And so you get into these discussions about what a good person is. And, and uh, you, you, you know, the person says, you know, how, good, good approach, are you going to go to heaven? Well, yeah, I think I'm going to go to heaven. Well, why are you going to go to heaven? Well, I'm a good person. Have you ever had this discussion, right? And then what do you do? Well, then you try to convince them while they're not a good person, right? Um, and to do that, we have to malign their moral character, which is a great game to play because then you say, you say really great intelligent things like, you mean in your whole life you've like never lied? You've like never like accidentally taken a pencil home from work and thus be guilty of theft, right? You've never like, like in, in, in high school kind of got out of control and went too far with a girl, right? And, and what are we doing, right? We're trying to, to say that we're, trying to, we're basically agreeing with them that goodness is defined in terms of moral character. And so we want to find some glitch in their moral character, right? So finally you find, oh, yes, oh, my goodness, you know, there was that day I took a pencil home from work. I'm guilty of, of theft. You got me, right? right? Okay, so what's our next move? Therefore, God is going to send you to hell for eternity because you took a pencil, Right, and and uh, so so one of two things is going to happen: they're going to break down in tears, they're going to feel tremendous remorse and guilt, they're going to weep uncontrollably and say, "Yes, I am a sinner. I am deserving of God's wrath and judgment because I stole a pencil." Right, or they're going to look at you and think, "You're out of your mind." Right, what kind of God is this who would send people to hell for eternity for stealing a pencil? Right, but oftentimes that is exactly how we present the gospel. Right. Because we're agreeing with this definition of goodness, that goodness is merely a matter of our moral character. And we want to show that people aren't as moral as, as they think they are. There's some little glitch somewhere where they have fallen short. 
And that's the whole problem why God would send them to hell. And while they're under God's wrath and judgment. Well, Jesus, as you might notice, does not go there. Right? Jesus does not try to, to convince this guy that somewhere he's broken one of the Ten Commandments. That somewhere he had some lustful thought or somewhere he was not really as gracious to his neighbor uh, as he could have been. Which later in the story is quite obvious, right? He's unwilling to sell anything and help the poor. So he's really not loving his neighbor as he ought. But Jesus does not go there. Jesus does not enter into this debate with him. Um, And I don't think we should either. I think when our presentation of the gospel goes in this direction, we fall very short of understanding what the real gospel is because we don't understand what the real problem is. Right? Uh, and when we start here, this is what happens. We make morality the standard for goodness, not our love for God. Right? Uh, it make, and, and, and the result of that is it makes the goal of the Christian life the pursuit of man-made morality. Right? We, we, we get converts who think they need Jesus because they stole a pencil, and we end up with disciples who are convinced the whole goal of the Christian life is to not steal pencils anymore. Right? And they miss what... Jesus died for. Now, did Jesus die for our moral failures? Absolutely. Is it true that we do have flaws in our moral character? Absolutely. But is that that at the root of what Jesus' death and what the gospel is all about? Well, Jesus would say no. Uh, We are not saved so that we can try to have the moral character equivalent to our unsaved neighbors. And that's what it kind of comes down to. We're going, well, you know, my my neighbor's good. I see I'm not so good, so hopefully salvation will at least bring me up to the level of my Buddhist neighbor. And we think that's the gospel. We miss the point hugely. Um, It also also is no wonder that, and because this is being taught and because this is the understanding of the gospel, it is no wonder that so many Christians in in our age today in the church are embracing universalism. Universalism, big word I can't say. Uh, the, the, the doctrine that everybody gets saved, right? That God's going to save everybody. And see, the, the logic goes like this. Well, if, if the only problem is that we have some, a few minor moral flaws like stealing pencils and you know, lying once in a while, well, how could a good and loving God banish us to hell for eternity because we're pencil thieves? And it seems incomprehensible to people that a loving God could do that. And so the alternative is, well, a loving God wouldn't do that, right? That would not be just. God's not petty like that. Because the only problem with us are a few penny sins and flaws of our moral character. So the church is super confused nowadays. And I'm, I'm, I'm just blown away, actually, by the number of people who are even wrestling with this issue. But it goes back to how we understand what it means to be saved and what the real problem is. Uh, so what does Jesus do? He, he avoids that whole he, the track, right? And he goes in a completely different direction. And he says to him, that's great, super, I'm proud of you, but, but you do lack one thing. Right? You, you lack one simple thing, but it's not a little thing. It's a simple thing. 
It's a clearly singular thing, but it is not small. It is, in fact, huge. Uh, He says this, and and to, to illustrate, he doesn't tell them what the one thing is, but he illustrates it brilliantly. And he puts before the man a choice. Uh, And he forces him to choose between one of two things. He says, one thing you lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. I love this. Jesus puts before him a clear and simple choice. In essence, Jesus says this. What do you love more? What is more important in your life, your wealth or God? Easy question, right? Not hard, not complicated. Right? He says, what do you choose? Notice what it, ha- what it happens. Verse 23, what it says. When the rich man heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Right? The word very sad there really undersells the depth of, po- of sadness here. It means he was struck with horrible grief. Uh, the words used in other places to describe... A, a person who's so sad, they are sad unto death. Right? He is grief-stricken by this choice. And he is unable to choose God. Right? He is unable to choose God. Why? Because he loves his wealth more than he loves God. See, Jesus boils it down to the, the, the real question of goodness. The real question of goodness is, do you love the soul a being who is good. Right? God alone is good. He is the embodiment of everything good. Everything about God is from top to bottom goodness. Right? He says, do you choose God or do you choose your money? And he is unable to choose God because he does not love God. He loves money. Right? The one thing, you don't love God. Now here's the question. Can you be a good person and not love God? Well, Jesus says, no, you cannot. You cannot because God is goodness itself. If you don't love him, you don't even love what is good. Much less can you be good. Um, It's kind of like... Do you ever know these people and whatever whatever you love to do, whatever sport or hobby you love, right? Maybe it's riding a bicycle. Maybe it's skiing. You do a lot of that in Thailand. Maybe it's playing an instrument. Uh, you know, you, you, you love it. You, you are, you're a fanatic for this sport, right? And you know people, and, and I've known people like this, who, um, who had money and who could, who could afford to buy all the gear, right? And they would buy all the gear, and they would make me super jealous because they had equipment and gear I could never, I could just never dream of. I have friends like when I was uh, doing a lot of music and playing the guitar a lot. I, I had friends who had, you know, five or six expensive guitars. Right? Interestingly, I never had friends who had like five or six harps. This doesn't, this doesn't apply with harps, but other things it does. Right? People who have harps, they play the harp. Right? But those people who have guitars, who have bicycles, who have skis, who have gear, who never actually use it. You know people like that? Right? They'll talk about skiing. They'll talk about bicycling. They'll show up with all the gear. right? They'll make everybody jealous. When you say, hey, let's go for a bike ride. Nah, nah, I'm not really interested. 
I don't really like riding a bike, right? Hey, let's get together and play. Uh, I don't know how to play the guitar. Ah, no. Then give me your gear, right? Share, right? Well, uh, can they be a true love? Can they truly love guitars if they have no interest in playing one? Well, maybe at some level. I don't know, right? Um, like I said, it's not true of the harp, right? People who own harps play the harp. Never met one who just collected them. And, you know, plays it very well. It was awesome, right? Uh, can you love the author of all goodness, right, and not pursue goodness? Right? It's impossible. It's impossible. Maybe it's true earthly, but with God it is not possible, right? Um, and Jesus shows that uh, we're using the wrong definition. We need to define, defin- we need to define goodness as this. Goodness is one who has God's heart and loves him. That's what it means to be good. And who is good? Well, Jesus says, um, verse 24, seeing that he had become sad, he said, Jesus says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, can a camel, huge animal, go through the eye of a sewing needle? There's been all kinds of weird descriptions because people don't really get what Jesus is saying here. And they're still trying to squeeze Jesus into this category of moral, moral goodness, right? And so there's been crazy things in the past about, you know, the, the needle with some gate in Jerusalem and the, the, the camel actually could squeeze through it, but it was just difficult, okay? No, 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 right? Jesus is making a, a kind of a hyperbolic statement. In other words, he's overstating things. He picked the biggest thing that he could think of, and he pictured it going through the smallest thing he could think of. Right? A real camel going through the eye of a sewing needle. Is it possible? Anybody? Is it possible? No. Okay, it is not possible. Now, magicians could trick you that it's possible, but it's a trick, right? It really cannot be done. Right? Jesus' point here is it is impossible for a rich person to... Enter the kingdom to be saved. Okay? King, entering the kingdom is a picture of salvation. So it's impossible. Okay? It is impossible for a rich person to be saved. Well, at that, and, and, and the reason is simply this, because their love of money, uh, they, they will never surrender their love of money for the love of God. Right? Their wealth means that they love God more, or love money more than they love God. And that prevents them from ever getting saved. Uh, now, of course, we know, it's like, I mean, rich people can't ever really get saved. Well, thankfully, God, wait, wait for it, okay? Wait for it. Um, but humanly speaking, yes, it's impossible. And those who, were, who heard this were shocked, right? And in Jewish culture, they believed that wealth was a sign of God's blessing, God blesses those who are good. Therefore, if you're wealthy, you're good. Right? So they're kind of horrified at this statement. And they say, well, Jesus, if rich people can't get saved, then who can be saved? Right? Uh, if it's out of the question for them, then what about the rest of us? Uh, Jesus does not counter them. He does not say, oh, don't worry. If you're poor, there's hope for you. That doesn't say that. What does Jesus say? He says, yeah, you're right. Right? With man, it is impossible for you or anybody else to be saved. 
It is impossible for you to be saved. But praise God, with Him, all things are possible. Jesus is not saying it's just impossible for rich people to get saved. He is saying it's impossible for everybody because everybody has an idol that they love more than God. For the poor people, their idol can still be money. Just because they don't have it doesn't mean they don't worship it. Or it can be other things. Every human being, the reality is at the core of it, the real problem with humanity is that we do not love God. We love other things more than him. And we cannot, in our own strength and power, turn ourselves away from those idols and love God instead. With man, it is impossible. So going back to our, our evangelism example, you're sharing Christ with somebody, right? They think they're a good person, right? You try to convince them that they're almost a good person, but they're just flawed in a few defects, like they steal pencils, right? You're missing the whole the whole failure of the human condition. The question is, okay, yeah, in your mind you're a good person, but do you love God? Do you love God? If you were given a choice between all your worldly wealth and God, which would you choose? If you were given the choice between the, the woman you love and God, which would you choose? If you're given the choice between power and success and God, what would you, what would you choose? Right? What do you worship? What means more to you than anything else in the whole world and the universe? What is the one thing you would die for because you love it so much? Is it God? And no matter how much people think they love God, and the reality is people do think they love God. You know, He's got heaven. He, he's big. He seems to be mostly nice. And uh, he promises us eternal life. What's not to love about that, right? But if we define love as devotion of putting him above everything else in our life, the truth is with man, no one can do this. It is impossible. What is the only hope? Well, God is the only hope. With God, all things are possible. And praise God, uh, the work of the cross, the work of Christ, has not just dealt with the moral failures of our wrong actions. The heart of the gospel is this, that Jesus died to break the power and grip of the idols that hold us captive that prevent and keep us from truly loving and worshiping and following him. Uh, We cannot on our own turn away from those things. But praise God, through the work of the cross, we can. Right? As it does its work in us. Because what we need is not simply to be forgiven of sin. We need that. Okay, it's important. But what we need more than that is we need our heart to be radically changed through the power and work of the cross. Do you get that? We need a new heart, right? It is only through the work of the gospel, only through the work of of Christ, through his death and resurrection, that we have the power and capacity to choose God over those other things. Uh, Jesus is not saying that we have to sell all and follow God in order to be saved, right? He's not saying that by the work of giving up everything you own, you can then earn salvation, Right? He's saying it's impossible for you to do that, really. Uh, you can do it at some level, but there will always be an idol. There will always be something we hold on to more than God. 
So we need to understand the real problem is our heart, and the real cure is the work of Christ. And we understand that it changes the purpose and ultimate goal of the Christian life. Uh, what is the Christian life really about? Is it really about becoming people of good moral character? Well, it's certainly not become, becoming people of bad moral character, okay? I'll, I'll give you that, right? But it's much more than that. It's much more than that. Uh, two, let me go back and highlight a couple of scriptures uh, to, to, to illustrate what Jesus intends for us to become in Christ. When Jesus heard this, he said to the man, the rich man, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Okay. Uh, Peter, uh, in verse 28, says, See, we have left our homes. We've left everything, and we have followed you. Uh, Jesus, Jesus affirms that this is the goal of the Christian life. The work of the cross ought to produce in us the one thing that was lacking in this man, and the one thing is this, that we love God with all our heart, so much so that we would give up everything to follow him. That's the one thing that was missing, an all-encompassing love for God. And that's what we, uh, uh, we become. That's the work that the cross does is it changes us. It makes us people who don't just collect guitars but actually like to play them, right? Don't just collect the gear, but actually value what it is, right? We turn from moral people to people who love God with all our heart. Uh, and in this uh, account, there's, there's three things that that means. It can mean more, it can mean less, but it means at least these, it means these three things in this story. First of all, to uh, love God with all our heart as, as a work, outworking of the cross in our life. It means that we lay down our idols, we come to a point where we lay down our idols, where we choose God and choose to love him above everything else. And I think this is both an instant decision and a lifelong process. Right? If you've come to Christ, if God has saved you, that choice lies before you. Do you choose God or do you choose other things? There, there must become a point in the life of a true disciple where we say, yes, I choose God above everything. I choose God above everything. Right? If you have never come to that point and you've never made that commitment and that decision, you really need to question the effect of the cross in your life. Right? Um, it's not required to, to come to that place in order to be saved, but if you are saved, it is required that you come to that place. Right? The person who says, I'm a believer, but I just don't really love God all that much, really needs to think seriously about um, are they in the kingdom? Okay, they need to be asking this question, what do I need to do to be saved? Right? What is lacking in my life? Jesus made it clear to this man, if you truly are going to be saved, if you're going to enter into the kingdom, then God has to mean more to you than everything else in your life. If you cannot choose him above everything else, you cannot enter the kingdom. Again, it's not a work. It's a work of the cross, not a work of me. But it's essential for the person who will follow him. Right? It needs to be at least a one-time commitment, but it's also a daily process where daily we need to decide what is more important as God brings choices before us every day. What is more important, God or my wealth? God or my family? God or being entertained? 
God or the countless distractions that take me away from him. God, uh, God's plan or my own plan. Right? Daily, we need to be choosing where our true love and loyalty lies. And to do that, again, it's not, it's not something we muster up courage and do by our own will. There's something we, we come to the cross and say, God, would you crucify, would you kill in me my own self-will? Would you nail to the cross that part of me that wants uh, nothing to do with your lordship, right? And that does not want to love you with all my heart. And Lord, may the work of the cross produce in me a heart that loves you with every fiber of my being. Second thing it means, it means that we follow him. We follow him. To be a believer is to be a disciple. A disciple is a Christ follower. Uh, the, G, the, the rich ruler was not willing to leave behind his life and follow Jesus like the other disciples did. Um, it is easy to keep rules. It is quite another thing to follow Jesus wherever he sends you, right? Uh, because following Jesus always involves some type of sacrifice. Following Jesus to one place mean, means leaving behind something else. And the disciples felt the pain of this. They had left homes and loved ones to follow him. Right? Uh, Jesus does not apologize for that. And he doesn't say, well, usually that's not necessary. <laughs> he says, no. You, if you're going to follow me, it will cost you something. It may cost you a great deal. It can cost you your family, loved ones. Uh, certainly the disciples had left their wives behind. Not permanently. Okay, note that. Okay, they didn't permanently leave their wives. But they were traveling following Jesus, and they had left behind uh, the daily connection with their life partners, right? Um, how many of us have come to Thailand and left behind family and loved ones and children and grandchildren and parents, right? It costs something to follow him. But again, it doesn't mean we do this by our own power because we're brave, because we are noble, we do it through the power of the cross, right, as God gives us a heart that longs to obey and follow him. Third thing, uh, it means uh, loving God with all our heart, putting him above everything, means trusting in his promises, right? trusting in his promises. The rich young ruler could only trust in his wealth. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus says, um, give up everything, sell everything, give it to the poor, and follow me, and I will do what? I will leave you in poverty for all of your days. No. He says what? I'll bless your socks off. I will give you the treasures of heaven. Okay? Not a bad exchange. Not a bad trade. Right? But he can't do it. He cannot believe that God has something better for him than what he already possesses. He can only trust his wealth. Right? Uh to love God is to believe that he is loving and good and that he wants the very best for you. It means to trust him with all your heart. In the United States, they have this game show that's been around forever. I used to like to watch called The Price is Right. Maybe some of you have seen it. And there's this one really fun part in the show where, uh, you know, the people will, will have accumulated some cash. They'll have money in hand, maybe $1,000, maybe $5,000, kind of varies. And the game show host says, okay, here's the deal. Um, 
you can you can you can take what's behind the, the door, right? Or or you can, uh, uh, but you, to do that you have to give up the cash, or you can just keep the cash. Let's show similar words. Let's make a deal, kind of same kind of thing, right? Um, and uh, it's great because there's this great tension, you know. What's behind the door, right? What's behind there? Now, uh, if the show was was really, you know, if they were always faithfully good, it would be an easy choice. Like if they always gave away a car or a house or expensive jewelry, it would be pretty easy. But they're tricky, right? They're not always good. And sometimes what's behind the, the door is a car or something really expensive. Sometimes what's behind the door is a pig, Right? Or a donkey, or you know, uh, a, choi- a, a, a ch- child's tricycle, some toy, right? So it's not always a good deal, and it's quite clear that the the, the uh, participants are not real trusting, you know, because a lot of times they just hang on to the cash, right? I'll just stick with what I got. Well, it's kind of like that. Do we trust God that what is behind the door, the thing that's unseen and unknown, is infinitely greater than what we have in hand? Well, it takes trust and faith in him to know that he's a good and loving God who always gives what is good and he always keeps his promises. What is his promise? Well, he says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in in this age, here and now, and in the age to come, eternal life. Do you believe his promise? If you love him all out, you will believe him. That what he has for you is infinitely better than what you are holding on to. But the deal is it's just like the game show. You can't have both. You have to let go of the cash in hand to get what's behind the door. God cannot give you the abundant blessings he has waiting for you until you lay down every idol and give up everything to him. That doesn't mean you have to literally go up and sell everything you own. Well, maybe, right? If it holds that much of a grip over your life, maybe you do need to sell some things. Maybe you do need to give away some things. But it's more of a heart issue. It's more of a place of your devotion and allegiance. Does God really own all your heart? And as God brings to your attention these things that may be competing for his affection, can you lay it down? Can you give it away? Can you give it up? Because you know that what he has is a hundred times better. And knowing that everything you ever lay down, he will replace many, many times over. Right? Many times over. Um, He will never leave us short because he's not that kind of God. Right? He's a God whose love and goodness is beyond what we can think or imagine. Right? Daily, we need to be wrestling with these things, right? Because uh, there are a lot of things in life that compete for God's love and affection. To be a good person is not to be a, a person of good moral character, a good Christian who goes to church and serves God and goes to foreign places and does stuff for him. Right? Those can be good things. But they are meaningless things if you do not love God with all your heart. Jesus says, this is the definition of goodness. It's the person who loves God with every 
fiber of their being, regardless of their moral character. Do you love God with your whole heart? And how do you live that out every day? If you're a humble person, you will be honest and you'll have to say, God, with me, that is impossible. Right? I can't let go of these things. Maybe it's anger or unforgiveness. Maybe it's your need to be better than everybody else. Maybe it's your need to be smarter than everybody else. Right? I don't know what it is. Only the power of the cross can dethrone that thing from your life and put your heart in the right place where you love and worship him. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.